Welcome to another episode with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and the entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore in the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. This week's Market Dominance Guys podcast wraps up a terrific three-part conversation between our guys, Chris Beal and Corey Frank, and their guest, Henry Wodala, founder and principal of Real Source Group. Today, Corey asks Henry how he's fine-tuned his business perspective and cold calling technique since his recent immersion in market dominance, guys. I copy and steal religiously, Henry freely confesses. I've wholesale stolen Chris's approach. Henry has gone so far as to distill all he's learned into a playbook with links to related parts of Market Dominance Guy's podcast episodes. He references the episode, You'd Better Believe It, with Matt Forbes, head of strategic accounts at Connect and Sell. Listen to Matt Forbes, Henry advises passionately, to the tone he uses when he talks about belief. Henry extols the cold calling virtues of Cheryl Turner, chief development officer of Connect and Sell's new flight school division in the secret of her success episode, and the value he gained from her belief that she's the equal of anyone she speaks to on the phone. Believe me, you'll want to hear the complete conversation between Chris, Corey, and Henry to get the full value from this week's Market Dominance Guys episode, Borrowing from the Best. So the initial cold calls you'd make, BC and AD, right? Before Chris and, you know, yes. after, right? Yes, so, yes. So with the, with the crock brain and um, uh, now that knowledge afterwards, you were leading with, in essence, again, talk about Oren's world, right? The cool cognitions, mm-hmm. data-driven, assuming folks would subscribe to the intellectual attraction of a deal from the numbers, from the, from the status of the firm, and then post- you led with what? How did you establish that trust out of the gate to have better results than, than, than before? Well, again, so it wasn't really so much, so before Chris, BC uh, was not so much about, again, the firm. It wasn't about pounding your chest about who we were, but it was just almost probably cramming facts down people's throats before they had the chance to finish the words hello. Now, I have no shame in being honest about this. So, I mean, I've pretty much wholesale stolen Chris's approach, the 27 seconds, even the approach to, frankly, discovery meetings. You know, it's really about, I think, getting the counterparty on the phone in a psychological condition. You can actually deliver something of value to them, but you can't get there without trust. Right. I've really become a disciple, and that's part of what drove the, frankly, a pretty big redraft. But we have a playbook that I use heavily. Um, but there was a lot of editing that went on to that but when I really stumbled across this whole concept of, of leading with trust as opposed to value. Yeah, when you pulled out the market dominance guys, you know, part of that book and the other book when we were in Seattle, I will admit it, I shed a tear or two. Really, I was so touched. I, I didn't know that anybody was ever going to like use this stuff. You know, So you didn't just use it. You used it with precision and thoughtfulness and commitment. You know, it was one of those moments that I thought, okay, what Corey and I have been up to all this time might actually be worthwhile because you always kind of look for like, is anybody going to kind of get it? Oh, you went way beyond getting it. Well, it wasn't until I really came. I mean, again, I can't, I really can't take any credit. I mean, this is, 
I don't know if it's Oscar Wilde or Pablo Picasso or whoever I've heard various attribution to, but the idea of the best thing to do is frankly steal the best ideas. And that's, I'm nakedly admitting that I've stolen the best ideas because they weren't my own, but it was immediately apparent upon doing that binge listening. That was the disconnect. It was like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, the, the prior approach worked. It certainly worked. But it really wasn't a best practice. And again, I can harken back to kind of a few key operating principles for me. One is the constant accumulation of best practices. And I'm totally agnostic to either where they came from or that they have any particular shelf life. If there's something better comes along, the prior one's gone. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That concept of, of building trust. We've had a lot of episodes, probably more than half of our episodes, I'd say, Chris. We It comes up one form or another. And and you referenced Warren, and we had him on a few times, and talking about that certainly. And and Chris has had many great episodes and riffs where we talked about tonality, and um, in the Sandler world, right, nurturing, and you know Matt Forbes is exceptional at that. Mark, right, you're from Connected Cell, is, is exceptional at that. Cheryl is, as you write, the one of the masters of our craft at that. Do you find that talking? now being aware because you can't unsee it you can't unknow it now is that when you talking to other asset managers or property owners or investors that the tonality the pacing has changed as well as your approach and has that made an impact and and i'm asking this under the guise henry of um uh there's a lot of folks in in our sales profession who say you can't cold call it doesn't work right chris and i we love engaging in discussions with people like that and, and, and for our competitors you're right it doesn't work right so don't don't use it it's a waste of your time but for those that are open how much of what you do is this nurturing tonality pacing and what kind of difference have you has have you seen by employing that more trust-based approach with your voice as well? It's an all the above answer. It, and speaking of feedback loops, here's another one, maybe in the micro, on the, in the framework of a 27 second cold call, hopefully maybe even less. It's the idea that if you, the other thing you guys have talked about, by the way, is belief, the power of belief. And I would say if the power of belief is there, it frankly takes care of the rest. And if you believe not just in the power of the discovery meeting, but the, the fact that you can offer something ultimately of value, but the pathway is trust, it almost really, it takes care of the rest. And I don't mean that that to be either a glib or partial answer to your question, but it all comes together, I think, in kind of that essence. Mm -hmm. that we've done the experiment. Yep. Let me jump in here, we've done the experiment. So we've done the experiment of having a group that we were in, Corey's business at that time a little bit, kind of a side business of ours. And we were helping out a customer who really wanted to have somebody else call and set appointments for their people. So we had a very talented group. We got the message right. This all took about 24 hours to set up. And they went like this, fail, fail, fail for three consecutive days. So I did the statistical math and I said, well, Okay, so now we have failed forever. I get it. We've succeeded in putting together a fail forever group. And this was a pure skin in the game deal, by the way. So we were going to get nothing unless we started succeeding, which I thought was interesting. So I asked a question of the person running the group. I said, do these reps who are doing this calling, 
truly believe in the potential value of the meeting that they're offering, even in the downside case for them, as far as they're concerned or, the, or our customer, that no business ever comes out of it. And I got the following back. So I thought, well, okay, your silence tells me the answer is no, they don't, because you would have said yes if they do. Let's go find a, a person who attended that meeting, one of those meetings, who did not move forward and got value. Let them talk directly to the group about the value that they got, about what they learned. And they did that. Nothing else changed. No coaching on tonality, no change of script, no change of personnel. And we went from zero to 27 meetings the next day. So we've actually done the positive experiment, which is introduce belief. In the absence of belief, we found out that technique was ineffective. And it was ineffective at a zero level. And I believe it's because of the value chain theory, which is you know, a, a missing link in a value chain gives you a non-value chain. It's not a chain, it's just not a chain, right? And the anchor, I came to believe very quickly in the value chain around initiating relationships that can lead to exploring the possibility of, sol of solving problems. The anchor link on that chain is the rep's belief in the potential value of that meeting for the human being they're speaking with should no business ever happen. And if I've told people this many, many times, if you were to change one thing about your team, change that. Not easy, but change that. Because as you just said, Henry, if you do, if you take care of that, actually technique becomes almost a nice to have. It's, it's better to have good technique than bad technique. But it's like, if here's a, a golf analogy. If you believe to make the ball go up in the air, you have to hit from below the ball and make it go up in the air. You're screwed for all time as a golfer. Because in all cases, you're, you can't make that happen consistently because there's this thing called the earth between you and the ball on that trajectory. And you're going to encounter it and find out that you can't actually make the earth counter rotate fast enough to not take energy away from your shot. That is when you dig in, it's not going to, you know, you're not that guy who, who stopped the earth from spinning. Who was that? Corey, your Bible's better than mine. Superman. Didn't some guy. Superman. No, no, no. Some oh. is. Biblical, oh, biblical, oh. biblical dude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> now, darn, I thought I had you here. I thought you were my man. So, you know, that's one of those beliefs that when you change that belief in somebody as a golfer and they start hitting down on the ball, believing that that makes the ball go up, magic starts to happen because they have a shot. Now, do you work on their technique? You bet. I'd rather have more club head speed than less. How do I get it? Doing something counterintuitive, right? I have to hinge my wrist and not control and a bunch of stuff that drives you crazy as a golfer. But when you learn it, it's kind of fun. But I think that you just hit it, Henry. Belief, correct belief, takes care of almost everything and will actually take care of enough to make you be in a market dominant position. I actually believe you can get all the way to a market dominant position by changing one thing. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And it's 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 absolute Pareto principle all the way down. It's turtles all the way down, right? I mean it's I would encourage your listeners that, you know, hopefully the folks that are listening to this, if they haven't been familiarized with the earlier episodes, go back and listen to Matt Forbes or as Chris calls him big Matt Forbes, because it's amazing to listen to those episodes. And those are some of the ones that I kind of did put in my transcriptions that really took it home to me. And 
I would say even in the finite, there's a feedback loop there. Listen to the tone in which Matt Forbes talks about the belief in the episode. I mean, my God, it was like it was like a, uh, you know, speaking of biblical references, it was like, you know, Saul to Paul listening to him. Yeah. Just going to, through the transformation as he described, you would hear the sincerity in his voice in your episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. By the way, yeah, yeah. the versions that I keep, you know, the actual live documents of the transcripts, I keep hyperlinks back to the actual recordings. And the reason I do that is I actually want to go back and listen to the tonality of the Matt Forbes describing that, or whatever episode you might choose. But to your golf analogy, it was kind of crazy, Chris, that you just referenced that because I was thinking the same exact thought of if you could hit down on the ball it's at least a Pareto you're at least 80 percent of the way there sure are you going to be on the PGA Tour of course not but are you have you taken away 80 percent of the burden probably and I think belief is the rough equivalent of hitting down on the ball on the cold call we'll be back in a moment after a quick break Connect and Sell, welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell's patented technology. You'll load your best sales folks up with eight to ten times more live qualified conversations every single day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing how many tears were shed while watching Titanic kind of qualified. And we're back with Corey and Chris. Wow. Okay, that's a good one. I had no idea. We've never spoken about this golf thing. This is quite interesting to me. So, you know, I've I've taught a lot of people how to hit golf balls. And my point is, I can teach you to hit a ball that's up in the air and get all the physics of the swing right. But until you believe that hitting down in the ball is not just a good idea, but is the only idea, you're screwed. Because the earth is really big, you know, it's 25,000 miles in diameter and weighs a lot and it's spinning. Yeah, so it takes a whole 24 hours to go around and still, you know, the surface of the earth is moving pretty quick and you're not going to be able to make it move as fast as a golf ball in the opposite direction. That's if you're, by the way, hitting toward the sun rather than away right. from the sun but you know that Corey. yeah and if you're at the equator it's a little bit more burdensome than elsewhere but but in all seriousness chris i mean it, it is really amazing about you can take the most simple of what sounds like simple principles be it on the golf course or in the context of a cold call and the weight that it carries the disproportional weight that it carries is profound and the belief i, I think everything stems from there getting back to the Corey, to your question more directly the tonality and all those things, they do absolutely matter. But I think where you can let technique move from technique to frankly, more just genuine communication when the foundation is built upon trust and belief, trust in the part of what you're trying to establish with the counterparty and belief in what you have on offer for them. Absolutely. And I think your testament, Henry, that it, it's, it's not just uh, germane to a manager or director level is that you can communicate and connect that trust vector at the highest levels, the sea levels of the world here, just from those same principles and they apply. Absolutely. And on this second year anniversary of, you know, market dominance, guys, I would I will also make another referral. Please go back and listen to the Cheryl Turner episodes. Yes. Cheryl talks about and Chris will, will attest to that. In fact, you frequently mentioned that Cheryl is the world leader in 
feeling that she's the equal of anyone that she speaks to on the phone. And that's absolutely right. So getting back to your question, Corey, it's, it's a belief in many ways. It's a belief about what you have on offer. It's about a belief in yourself. And again, easier said than done, but it's applicable all the entire range up and down this, the corporate stack, depending on the organization that an individual works for, this does not have to be purely the domain of the senior execs or the C-suite that can execute against this type of approach. Uh, and it's more than approach. Again, it's a belief system. And I think that's the most profound thing. So anyone from, frankly, the most junior person uh, with at least some modicum of training all the way up, there's really no reason why this can't be applied throughout. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny, you know, Simon Sinek talks about start with why. And the why of why is without the proper why, without the real why, without digging into like why, why, then your belief is fake. And fake belief is is the worst kind of thing in the world. <laughs> it's like the, the one thing you don't want to fake is belief. And I, I hear a lot of stuff in business. I've heard this many, many times through my career that there's a fake it till you make it thing. And it's always made me bristle. In fact, it's not bristle. Very few things other than raw broccoli make me want to throw up. I love cooked broccoli, by the way, but I'm, I'm sensitive to the chemical. And raw broccoli, it's a protein that's folded wrong for my system. That does. When somebody says fake it till you make it, I just think, you know, I, I just spent a little time understanding what's underneath it so you don't have to fake it. Because if you're in a business of having to fake it, you're a charlatan. That's the definition of a charlatan. Somebody who who convinces others of value that is not there, right? That's it. So fake, I hate fake it till you make it. If anybody watching this is a big fake it till you make it fan, why don't you fake some sincerity and see if you can get me to buy your thesis, right? <laughs> but it suggests some pre-work in the real world. And I'll go back to being a fuller brush man. I used to knock on the door and I think as some people who've listened to this know, I would say, hi, I'm Chris Beal. I'm your new fuller brush man. You probably don't know what fuller brush is. I sure don't. And then I'd stand there. Well, that was the absolute God's honest truth. <laughs> I didn't know. And then uh, inevitably they would ask me, well, can I help you? Well, that's a pretty good question to get as the very first utterance from a prospect, right? Can I help you? It's not bad. There's, there's certainly stuff that's lower on the totem pole than that. But my point is when I got to the end of that week, because I had offered to go do some research and only come back if I found something that I thought would change their life, you know what? I did the research and I found one or two items that I thought would really change their life. That belief was what allowed me to come back. Not, oh, here's what I'm going to say about it. I've got this trick. It's, so sometimes I think people look at like the breakthrough script stuff that we do with Connect and Cell and they go, oh, it's a trick. Well, it's a trick, but when used as a trick, it doesn't work. <laughs> it's like a trick that evaporates when you try to use it as a trick. And I think that's the key to all of this. And I've always thought the beauty of sales is sales disciplines companies to offer value in the modern world, not the tragedy of the crossroads, the modern world, because it doesn't work as well when you don't sincerely believe in the value. So either the salesperson has to be a charlatan or a fool, or they have to be a sincere exponent of the potential value. Those are the only three positions you can take. Right. And if you're watching this and you want to take one of those positions, uh, some of you will want to be charlatans, right? There's like a thousand books on sales that say be a charlatan. Many of them use the word persuade, right? 
cause somebody to believe something that they don't believe for your convenience. That's a that's kind of the the core idea around a lot of sales training. Some are fools. They're just happy fools and kind of go through it and they get away with it. But you know, you're actually you as a salesperson are the selection and filtering mechanism for society to find out what's of value because you choose first what you're going to sell. And part of your job is choosing the good stuff. Henry's got good stuff, right? Corey, on occasion. Me? Yeah, I don't know. Many people think I'm a charlatan. Cheryl certainly did when we first met. <laughs> and then, then she thought I was a fool, and then she moved on from there. Wasn't it funny that, again, just to tie it back just briefly, uh, Chris, to your point about the Apple and going back to the office and this concept of going back to the office is that the belief system used to say, right, as we've talked about many times, is we need to be here physically, right, to touch, to collaborate, to whiteboard, to eat lunch, to commute, to share the shared sacrifice of the accident on the 101 and we had to detour and that's why we're late. We had to have those shared experiences. And now for the last year or so, right, you're saying, wait a minute, that belief was wrong because my production actually went up not down. Yeah. And now you're telling me I've got to disavow that belief system that we've lived in this world for the last 18 months or so and go back to that old belief system. That's a little tough to put that genie back. It is. It is. Well, it's going to be it's it's going to be tough to put a lot of them back and they're not going back. I mean, the beauty of physics is it tells us what's going to happen. Right. Physics is all about saying if you can give me a, a pretty rough setup of what the current situation is, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we have a situation here where, where the physics of people and artifacts, mechanisms, systems, ideas, this thing called the internet, which is still an underbet, by the way, still an underbet. And it's, here's the case where the internet was underbet because it wasn't properly bet on for its ability to deliver people to each other in business. Mm. That was a huge underbet. That's probably the biggest value that we will get. It's not the ability to go on and buy something and have it show up at your house. That's really cool. But actually, it's displacing something you could have done by going to Walmart. It's like a small displacement, not a big displacement. This is a big displacement. And also our circle of I'll call it trusted friends that we can do business with grows massively. And it doesn't mean we don't want to get together. Henry, what did we do after a few conversations? Let's get together, right? right? But did we get together at your office? No. Did we get together at my office? Well, I don't have one, so that would be difficult. We got together at a hotel that was nice enough, and we did that thing, right? But we don't do it every day. We also got together for brunch the other day in Denver, which was super delightful. Brought a third party in, who's my first party right over there. And uh, by the way, her assessment of you, Henry, is that I tell you, she would throw me over for you if you weren't married. I don't know if, how that would work out, but I'm just, I'm just, yeah, I'm just saying. She says otherwise, but I could read it right there at the table. There's no difficulty well, figuring it was that an one absolute, out. Absolutely, absolute pleasure getting to meet your fiance, and uh, I mean. Helen was just tremendous, but yes, I am. I am a taken man. In fact, I have to credit my wife for introducing me to lack of a If it wasn't for her, I would not know the PD goodness and the 
campfire in your mouth <laughs> deliciousness that is Lagavulin. But I, I do think, Corey, you just to again to kind of bring some of these things back together. Maybe the bigger picture in terms of the office work environment is that we've been historically getting around the wrong water coolers. It's about the schlepping to work, all the agita that is getting to and from as opposed to, I think one of the most powerful things, honestly, is the ability to share my screen because I can share my screen with colleagues and we can collaborate in real time. And, and weirdly enough, some of the key team members of my group, um, Chris Haller, Chris, you've had the chance to meet, we are our most productive when we actually just get on Zoom and screen share. We don't typically actually do video like what we're doing now with each other, but we screen share and it's imminently powerful um, because we can collaborate in real time. And I think that's the water cooler to get around. Uh, it's one, I mean, there's others as well, but I, I get it. I mean, on the one hand you understand, you know, part of me understands where Tim Cook's coming from and not because of the sunk cost bias of their hugely enormously Norman Foster designed expensive campus. But what does become apparent is that there is something about culture for, for larger companies in particular, but it's not necessarily about the headaches of getting to and from work. That's not really what the culture should be built around. Like I've said earlier, I think the next year and a half to two years for a whole host of reasons, negotiating power, real estate leases coming up to, you know, and do, it's gonna be extremely interesting to watch how these market dynamics play out in terms of the top 20% and what their relationship is with their employers. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that we had a whole episode with Tom Shun. Where does Tom live? I'm not sure. I think it's Toronto moving to Ottawa. Yeah. Where are Tom and I every single day for an hour of my time, the most precious hour of my work day, every day is spent in the tender, <laughs> tender arms of my data concierge letting my curiosity explore what might be true that I don't know about. And we've never met, but we have a very close relationship. I mean, as close as I think it's possible in a working relationship, frankly, and it's all through screen sharing. Yeah. Yeah. We keep the video on because we think it's a little earthy and it's kind of fun. And I'm often like, you know, I'll admit it. I'm sometimes still in my robe at that point. It's only 11 AM. If Hugh Hefner can do it, you know, why not Chris Beal? But the the idea of being able to do something as deep as that, think about how deep that is, right? We're getting down into, like, we're taking 60, 70 million rows of data and finding truths in there that we didn't know were there, and we've never met. But we do screen share about an hour a day. Yeah, I, I would make a case that the screen share may be the most intimate um, business relationship one could have in today's world, more so than the video. I agree. Because you're putting your work. Yeah, I agree. You're putting your work product up and forward. Yeah. Well, you know how I sell Connect and Sell, right? It's pretty simple. I get on with somebody and I say, would you like to see how we manage our own company using Connect and Sell? And everybody says, yes. And I just do a screen share and I bring up live how we're doing. I've never looked at it, by the way. I make a point of never knowing what's going to pop up on the screen because it's more fun. Like we can all be surprised together. They're surprised that anybody at all could be having a hundred and, you know, whatever conversations, right? Well, in a day, it might be 40 or 50. My surprise is, gosh, I didn't know Rob was killing it today like this. He's got five meetings already and it's only nine o'clock or whatever it is. So it is that that screen share 
is so much more intimate than the video. The video is nice and all, but it's a little unnerving for some people. But the screen share is true sharing. There it is. It's the screen. It's the work. It's the yeah. meaning of this thing. Now let's dig in. Yeah. And it, it invites faster, deeper, more honest digging in, I think, than any whiteboard. And I, I made this point on a, another I don't know, same comment, another comment on LinkedIn. I have a hard time keeping them straight because I do them very early in the morning when I'm not fully awake. It probably shows in the writing. But one of the points that was uh, Helen reminded me of the other day is when you're in the physical office, certain people physically dominate. That shouldn't surprise anybody that that's true, but it should shock anybody who thinks it's good. It's not good. It's not good. If you're the person who can physically dominate a meeting, and you learned those tricks on the playground as a kid, because that's where you learn them. You learn physical dominance on the playground, and then you're applying that at work. You're robbing the group of value from the participation of those who are physically dominated. Mm. And, you know, Henry, you're not a small guy, right? I can practice physical dominance pretty well. Corey tends to keep a baseball bat behind him in his office just in case anybody doesn't know what he's what he's all about, Gable. you know, and we feel kind of OK about this stuff. But actually, it's not OK. It's yeah. not OK at all. We had a, a, a somebody recounted today uh, that somebody who is blind was using Connect and Cell today, using some screen technology, not using our mobile app, by the way, which actually is designed to be used in a car and by people who can't see or can't see as well but had a great experience. What I thought about is, wow, this isn't happening in the office. If it was in the office, I don't care what you say your values are. That person who can't see to, with their eyes to find their way around is at a fundamental cultural disadvantage that they have to overcome. And that is not true. And when we're, when we're talking, even just talking to each other, right? And the screen share is a little tricky because something's got to Maybe the screen share doesn't work so well for a, for a person who's blind, but I can tell you the physical office is nasty. Yeah. It's just bad. Yeah. Look, Zoom fatigue is real, but I, I personally believe that Zoom fatigue is largely when people have to put on the so-called Zoom mullet of nice top, maybe if anything below, but that's of really no value. <laughs> it's really what's on the screen. It's the work product. It's the honesty to show what you've been working on. Um, and I think there's a real, actually very beautiful distillation that goes on in the ability to actually collaborate, truly collaborate with people by sharing screens, sharing work products, sharing thinking, I mean, because that's what really work product is. It's really your thinking around whatever is the problem you're trying to solve, right? Zoom, go to, it doesn't really matter which platform. It's the idea that you can actually collaborate in real time. It doesn't matter that they're either on the other side of a cubicle which actually in that case, they're going to probably bias to kind of walking around and looking at your screen, which isn't really actually as productive. Mm -hmm. So there, I think there's a lot of uh, really powerful dynamics that are going to begin to unfold here over time. They're starting to happen now because we've been talking about them. But give it, again, 18, 24 months, maybe less. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to be in an entirely different environment in terms of how the top town, the top tier, that Pareto principle, 20%, Chris, that you talk about, is really going to be kind of defining the terms of engagement with employers. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, great. Well, gentlemen, I think collectively we're out of, of scotch and, and tequila. So, and that means... Oh, I, I still have some more. It's a fresh bottle. Oh, you have a little bit more. Okay. It's we, a fresh uh, bottle. 
You got a whole bottle <laughs> of uh, fresh peat goodness uh, there, absolutely. So I tell you what, you know, I don't think we've had any guests, and I don't anticipate any guests that we're ever going to have on market dominance, guys. Where um, you know we have this hierarchy of IQs where I don't bring up the rear, and I think this is uh, this is also no exception to this one, Henry. So I always tell Chris that kind of prodded him to nefariously start this program on the book so I can, you know, suck all these ideas and uh, use them in my businesses. And uh, and today is no exception with another three or four pages of, of, uh, of notes. So I get the front row seat. I, I'm doing the same thing. I'm doing the same thing, Corey. I mean, I mean, I copy and steal religiously. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And it's great to have you part of the uh, part of the market dominance team or the markets we sound like we're an English company now. Markets dominant team, right? Maybe it's a little bit Markets, more. Markets, maths. Are we going to talk yeah. about maths? Maybe our friend uh, Jerry Hill. Maybe he will. He will have another one on the other side, and we'll change the spelling to one of those words to make it more, you know, uh, you know, uh, UK Queen's English, if you will. Um, so, Henry, thank you very much for the time. I am sure. I am sure this is not the last time that you're going to be on the market dominance, guys. You have way too many great ideas rolling around there and I just love the interchange between you and Chris and um, and that's uh, something for all of our marketers dominance uh, listeners to uh, to look forward to so until next time this is Corey Frank with Chris Beal and Henry Wotia the market dominance guys today's show is also brought to you by uncommonpro.com selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Mm-hmm.